As we proceed with this morning, we continue on in, our, in the Gospel of John series, making our way. We are currently in chapter 8. There, there are a lot of things that, uh, that I enjoy about the Christmas season. There are lots of traditions, lots of things like that. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I get giddy about Christmas, right? I actually woke my kids up at 5.30 on Christmas morning because I was the giddy one. I was the excited one. I wake them all up, and then, uh, and, and then we get excited, and we just we sit in their room for a very long time because I'm not allowed to wake my wife up on Christmas morning. So we just have to, like, leave her alone. And so we just get excited together and just, like, encourage each other and provoke each other until eventually we just we just have so much energy we just can't contain it and then and then I send the kids to wake her up so I don't get in trouble um, so th- there are lots of things that we get excited about on Christmas but one of the things that I get most excited about one of the traditions that excites me the most are the lights I love the lights. I love all the lights that we do, whether, whether it's putting lights on the house or it's, uh, or it's doing the uh, Advent candles or things like that. I love all the lights that are associated with Christmas. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't love installing the lights or putting the lights up. I, I enjoy looking at the lights when someone else has already done it for me or once it's already done. This year was actually our first year to put lights up on, on this current house that, we've lived, that we live in. In our, uh, in our previous houses, we've always put lights up. But this, uh, the house that we currently live in, the, sea, the roof line is a little bit higher. The pitch of the roof is a little bit steeper. So I've kind of avoided it upon fear of death. Um, but this year, my wife was, I mean, we decided that, uh, that it would be a really neat thing to have lights on the roof. So, so I, I went and I got the ladder out and I climbed up onto that um, 60-foot roof line with incredibly, like, like cliff-steep um, pitch on it, and uh, under fear of death with, like, 50-mile-an-hour winds blowing across, freezing, everything was iced over. And, uh, yes, the story does get more exaggerated every time I tell it. But you should hear my kids tell the story. Uh, my, my kids are out there helping me to kind of hold the ladder in place and everything as we, as we line up every single light to make sure it's all perfect when we get down. But, but it's beautiful afterwards, right? And so, so, so you look at it, and at least for me, it, it was worth it because I can look at it. It's beautiful. I turn it on every night to make sure it's showing. And for me, it's hard, for, it's hard to miss. I think for Christians, for us, it's hard to miss the truth, the spiritual truths behind those lights. That Jesus Christ is the true light shining forth in the darkness. So when I come home and I see, and, and it's, the house is dark and it's dark outside, but I see those lights lit up and lit up against the snow, it reminds me of the reality that Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true light. We spend a lot of time and effort on lights at Christmas because we can appreciate this symbolic association between Jesus and being the light of the world. But what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be the light? What exactly? I mean, we affirm it. We talk about it all the time. But what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be the light? Does it mean Jesus glows in the dark? Is that what it means? So like we have to like charge him up before, before we turn out the lights so that he glows? Is he some kind of a bioluminescent creature like, like, like some fish are in the ocean that he just kind of glows in the dark? Is he a glowing Jesus? Is this what it means for a Jesus to be the light? This morning as we look at our passage, I want to address that question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the light? And we'll, we'll break this talk up generally into two parts. We'll break it up into seeing the light and enjoying the light. 
Today we'll be working our way through John chapter 8, verses 12 to uh, 36. John chapter 8, verses 12 to 36. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up, and we'll read through the passage together. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I, where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are from this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time that we have, that we, can, that we can approach you through your word, Father, that we can see the beauty and the radiance of your Son. Father, I pray that you would shine forth through your Son all the more clearly. Father, that your word would be evident to us this morning, that it would be powerful, that it would be effective in our hearts, that it would move us, that it would shape us, that it would draw us near, Father, that we would have a deeper relish, a deeper desire to know you and to make you known. Father, please overwhelm us with the magnificence and the splendor of your word this morning. God, please be powerfully present with us as we, as we, as we speak about your Son. Father, I pray that you would guide my words, God, and that you would do amazing things with your law. 
Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So our passage begins then in verse 12 this morning. And we begin by looking at Jesus declaring that he is the light. Through him, we can see the light. Verse 12, Jesus, in verse 12, Jesus is teaching that he is the light of the world. And with that, he beckons to rec- that we should recognize him as such. That we need to recognize that Jesus is the true light. But we need to explore the context of Jesus' teaching a little more. The first word in our passage this morning is that word, again, noting that it's a continuation on from the previous passage, from what came before. So this should naturally lead our eyes up the page where you'll notice that there's a passage that we haven't yet addressed in our sermon series, the episode of the woman caught in adultery, well known for Jesus' mysterious writing in the dirt. If you look at the passage, you'll also notice in your Bible that there's probably something like brackets that have been put around this passage, extending from, uh, extending from chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11. Or, or maybe, maybe instead of brackets, maybe there's a line that's separating it from the rest of the text with some fine print. Or potentially, in some of your Bibles, it might even just be relegated to a footnote altogether. There's a, the reason for your Bibles to separate it from the rest of the text the way it is, is because most New Testament scholars and most Bible translators do not believe that this passage was actually originally in the Gospel of John when it was first written, um, but rather was added centuries after the fact. We saw a similar situation back in chapter 5. If you remember when Pastor Jason preached through that passage, we saw that verse 4 also was probably not part of the original text. And so consequently, in many of your Bibles, it was relega- that also was relegated to a footnote. And Pastor Jason commented on it at that point in time. Similarly, then this morning, we have a passage that doesn't seem to be original. It doesn't seem like it was originally part of John because it doesn't occur in any of our oldest Greek manuscripts prior to the 5th century. Prior to the 5th century, it was nowhere. It also doesn't appear in our oldest translations. Yes, there are other translations of the Bible that aren't just in English, but our oldest translations of John also don't include it. In addition, the early church fathers who actually commented on John, who preached on John, who taught about the Gospel of John, they also leave it out. It's never mentioned. And even once, and even once it does begin to appear, centuries later, it shows up in a variety of passages. It doesn't just show up in this location. In fact, it doesn't even just show up in the book of John. So it seems like they're struggling to kind of figure out where they want to stick it. In fact, Greek, um, Greek scholar and New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, who teaches at Trinity, our flagship school and seminary, he, uh, he comments on the, the Greek of the passage, noting that the Greek doesn't even match up with the Apostle John's Greek. The style is very different from the rest of the book. So what we have here is a passage that doesn't seem like it fits with the Gospel of John. Um, and as far as we can tell, historically, it appears that it was actually added centuries after the fact. So then, what do we do with this kind of information? How do we handle this? Well, the first thing we want to note is that our Bibles 
attempt to communicate that to us, right? That's the reason we have those notations that we do have in the scripture, whether it's, whether it's separated into a footnote or separated by lines or separated by brackets or whatever it is. Our scriptures want us, those who are translating the scripture, those who are teaching the scripture, want us to know that this probably is not original and, in fact, is significantly later than the rest of your Bible. Now, there's different ways that we can handle this. Some might hear this, and this might actually cause some fear and some concern. But I just want to encourage you that this isn't a scary thing to note this. Remember, your scriptures, your scriptures were written around 2,000, or the newest portions of your scripture were written around 2,000 years ago, right? The scriptures are a testimony of the way that God has continued to preserve his word for his people. It's amazing that of the thousands and thousands of manuscripts out there, uh, over the course of 2,000 years, that there is so much consistency that as we look at scriptures today, there are almost no questions in terms of what is God's word, right? And again, this certainly isn't one of those questions because we look at it and all of the evidence shows that this is significantly later. So all of this The more we learn about the history of the text that you're holding, the more you learn about the history of this, that it actually precedes Zondervan publishing or Crossway publishing or wherever your Bible comes from, the more that we learn about it, the more confidence it should give us about the sufficiency of God's word and the consistency of God's word. It's amazing that after all of this, that we can look at this biblical text and know with a great deal of confidence that this is God's word that was originally given through his prophets and through his apostles, even despite the 2,000 years and the thousands of manuscripts and all of the things that, that it has had to go through to get to your hand today, right? This is a testimony of God's great work, that your text is so stable and so confident that we can, um, that we can trust in it. Now, this is all important for a number of reasons, but for our immediate task of looking at verses 12 to 36 today, it's important because, again, verse 12 begins with again, which means that it's linked to the passage that precedes it. And if this woman caught in adultery passage isn't actually in the original Gospel of John, then that means you have to flip the page back a little bit further and see where it does connect seems like it most appropriately connects going back to chapter 7, especially with the context of chapter 7, looking at verses 37 to 38, where Jesus declares that he will provide drink to those who thirst on the final night of the Feast of Booths. So our passage is possibly located during this Feast of Booths. Hence the note in the passage in 820 later on that Jesus is preaching in the treasury of the temple. Now, Pastor Jason shared last week about the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a festival that was prescribed in the Old Testament. It was one of the biggest Jewish holidays, being one of the three pilgrimage festivals where all of Israel would stream back to Jerusalem to celebrate together. As Pastor Jason mentioned last week, it was celebrated God's provision in the wilderness wanderings of the ancient Israelites as they, as they, as they left Egypt, as they, um, as they took part in Exodus. They would celebrate by journeying to Jerusalem, and then they would live in these kind of temporary shelters, almost like a tent. They would live in these temporary shelters for a week, and they would basically just party and celebrate. 
They would just enjoy themselves. They would enjoy, they would reflect upon the way that God had done so much for them in the wilderness wanderings. This was a grand time. This was an exciting time. And then on the last night, they would stay up all night long, dancing and singing the Psalms with torches in their hands, rejoicing about what God had done in the temple court, lit by these, lit by these, huge, by these four huge lamps. And this was to celebrate God's guidance of the people, specifically by the pillar of fire in their Exodus wanderings. That's the background for our passage this morning. That's what's happening in the background as Jesus is speaking. Now, our passage, so this was a long detour, but it was an important one, right? Our passage this morning then looks at this passage where Jesus declares that I am the light. And imagine all of this backdrop, all of this happening in the background. This sparks Jesus' next debate with the Pharisees who go on to contest his claim. The following verses are really, are really two different exchanges. We have, we have verses 12 through 20, and then we have verses 21 through 36. But John uses these two different exchanges to highlight three main points, three main themes that fill out the question of what it means for Jesus to be the light. So we're going to kind of weave our way back and forth between these two different exchanges to try to draw out these three major themes. The first theme is Jesus' origin and his destination. The Pharisees have challenged Jesus' claim. So he responds that his testimony is true because verse 14, he knows where he comes from. He knows his origin. He knows where he's from. This is a recognition of where he comes from, giving Jesus, um, giving Jesus special insight and authority to declare himself to be the light. He goes on later in our passage to restate this origin theme in verse 23, that he is from above and not from this world. But what does it mean that he's from above? Where is he from? There are many ways we could answer this. We, we could talk about what, what we mean when we usually say, where is a person from? Right? If someone asks you where you're from, you would typically say something along the lines of where you're born, something like that. But that's not the answer that Jesus or the Gospel of John is seeking to give here. It's not focusing on where Jesus was born. In fact, there's very little emphasis here on where Jesus was born. And Jesus certainly wasn't created, right? There never was a time when Jesus was not. There wasn't a time when Jesus was created. Jesus, at least as the Son, has always been. He wasn't created. In fact, according to John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were created through him. All things that had a beginning were begun by him, so that his origin isn't about his birth. It's, it's about where he was from prior to taking on flesh. Where was he? He was with the Father. He was from everlasting with the Father. Again, chapter 1 of John, verses 1 to 2, he was with the Father. And the Father has, in verses 26 to 29 of our passage, sent him out into the world. And just like we see in John 1, because he is eternally from the Father, he can be the light. Because he is coming forth from the Father, because the Father has sent him into the world, he can now be the light of the world. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 14, it's not just because of his origin, but it's also because of his destination that he can be the light. Jesus knows where he is going. Verse 21, Jesus is going away. Where is he, where he is going? The Pharisees cannot follow him. 
Where is he going? Well, he's from the Father, and he's going back to the Father. Everything, everything is bookended by the Father and his relationship with him. In contrast, the Pharisees are from the world. They are from below. And apart from Christ, they have no hope of ever being with the Father. Verse 14, they don't understand where Christ is from or where he is going. Verse 15, their judgment is limited and errant because of their condition. They don't understand what's going on around them. Nor are they even qualified to assess Jesus' claims about who he is. They, they represent the darkness of John 1. They're shrouded in sin. They're spiritually blind. They're slaves of the world. They are not only immersed in the darkness, but they're even filled up with the darkness. Therefore, they have no recourse. They have no ability or no means to understand. They need a light. They need a light that can pierce through the darkness, that can shine forth where they're at, who they are, what their needs are. And that can only come from outside of this world of darkness. They're like men stumbling about in the darkness on the precipice of a cliff, about to take the plunge over staggering back and forth and swaying. And all of a sudden, someone shows up with a flashlight, an outsider, someone who has come in to rescue them. But at the first glimpse of the light, they shriek in pain because they have become so accustomed to the darkness. They destroy the flashlight and with it, all hopes of salvation, all hopes of deliverance, they return to their darkness. Waiting, waiting for their bleak end. Jesus is the light because of his origin and because of his destination. He's not from this spiritually dark world. He's a sojourner from another world who has come in to show us the way back to his world, to life with his father. So Jesus is uniquely competent to declare the route of eternal life to be with the father. Jesus goes on to root his assessment about being the light in the testimony about his father and the father's identity. In verse 16, Jesus claims to provide an accurate assessment of his claims because he does not judge alone, but in conjunction with the father. The father's testimony, in addition to Jesus's unique testimony, is more than enough to corroborate Jesus's statements about being the light. The father in verse 18 bears witness about Jesus. And so Jesus' affirmation is confirmed by the father's testimony. And in verse 26, the father is true and he is reliable. He is a valid witness to have. Jesus perfectly represents this father. In verse 28, he speaks only the father's words. In verse 29, he does only what the, what the father desires. He does the father's actions and performs them perfectly. So Jesus, is, uh, so, so, so Jesus is always at one with the father. Even though he came down from the father, in some sense, again, verse 29, he never really left the father. The father is always with him, even in his earthly ministry. So when the Pharisees don't understand who Jesus' father is in verse 27, and they ask Jesus where his father is, in verse 19, they genuinely don't understand who Jesus' father is. They're genuinely still clueless. They don't know what he's talking about, which I don't totally blame them. I'd probably be scratching my head too at this point in the conversation, saying, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know what you're saying. 
but they don't get it. They don't know the Father. And he also similarly confesses that you don't get it. Jesus responds by confirming their ignorance. You know neither me nor my Father. Again, they are in darkness. And not only has this darkness affected their ability to understand the truths about what Jesus said, but even to know God and to know his identity. You cannot know the Father apart from the Son, which ultimately leads to Jesus' third theme in this passage. Who is the Son then? What is his identity? Ultimately, all of this debate swirls around that one central question. Who is Jesus? Who is he to make such claims about himself? Jesus begins by defending himself on the grounds of his origin and destination. And then Jesus defines himself in, in terms of his relationship with his father. But, who, but to understand the father, we have to understand the son. The father and the son are distinct, but they are also one. And the avenue to knowing either or having relationship with either is ultimately through the son, through Jesus Christ. This is why Christ came. This is why why the light shined into the world, so that we can know the Father. But the Pharisees are rejecting the light. They are rejecting the light that has shined forth into the world. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 24, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What? What does he mean by that? It's interesting. What exactly are we supposed to believe about him? What does it mean for him to be, I am he? It's interesting because in the original Greek, there actually is no he there. So the translated could, so it could be translated as I am he, but it could also just be translated as I am. Therefore, the translation would be something along the lines of, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is probably a subtle allusion to God and to Jesus' own divinity. In the Old Testament, God regularly makes himself known as I am, especially in Exodus and in Isaiah. It seems likely that Jesus is making a veiled reference here to his divine identity. This theme will only continue to heighten throughout the course, especially throughout the course of chapter 8, but then even in the subsequent chapters of John's gospel. So Jesus is declaring that apart from a genuine belief in him, the Pharisees would be condemned. The Pharisees at this point in time would probably be a little bit confused by this obscure statement, which is why you see them responding the way they do. Who are you? He answers their question by describing the father in verse 26, which in verse 27, they still don't understand. So then we get to verses 28 and 29. And he declares that once they have lifted up the son of man, Lifted up the Son of Man. So so in the Gospel of John, that language of lifting up the Son of Man, that's a reference to the cross. That's a reference to the cross and to the sacrifice that's coming, to what Jesus is going to endure. Um, Interestingly, this is a fun thing about John. Interestingly, John is consistent to point out that that Jesus' glory in his earthly ministry is most manifest It's most manifest, it's most made known, not in his healings or in his teaching or in in his walking on water or in his feeding of 5,000 people or in his commanding of, of creation's obedience or in his raising up of the dead, but rather his glory is most manifest in his humiliation. 
It's in his lowest point. It's in the point where we would think the most lowly of him that Jesus is actually most glorious and most glorified. It's an interesting tension. It's a, it's a beautiful tension. That that's the point. That's the point when Jesus is most glorious. It says he hangs upon the cross because of his great love for his, for his people, for his church, for his bride, and for his father. That his glory and his attributes shine forth all the most clearly. Because he is that beautiful. That's why Jesus is telling them that it's when he's lifted up, when he's on the cross, that they will finally know that, verse 28 again, that I am. It's the same expression that we saw back in verse 24. So what does it mean for Jesus to be I am? It means that he is eternally one with the Father, speaking and doing the things of the Father in perfect unity. So to, to summarize, to summarize these three themes then, Jesus has met the arguments of the Pharisees by giving them this robust Trinitarian argument for why he is the light. He is the light because he is from the Father and is perfectly united with the Father in his willing, in his doing, in his speaking, while still being fully divine and distinct in himself. And he's come to reveal the Father as the perfect light. It's funny, there are many Christians today who maybe feel like the Trinity is, is too complicated and it's too confusing. And so we don't like to think about it and we don't want to talk about it because it, gets, it leaves me confused and I don't like feeling confused. And so let's just ignore it. Is it really that important anyways? But then we look at Jesus and there is no other answer than to say, yes, it is crucial. It is absolutely crucial that we understand the Trinity. Not that we understand comprehensively, because we're not going to. It is mysterious. But that we appreciate the truths about the Trinity that God's word reveals to us. Because Jesus is passionate about the Trinity. Jesus is passionate about his relationship to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus spends so much time talking about his relationship to the Father and the Spirit. Because for us to have a relationship with the Father, we have to have a relationship with the Son and with the Spirit. Our relationship with him, our communion that we enjoy with him now, our relationship, it's all Trinitarian. Everything that we know about God is ultimately Trinitarian, whether we choose to recognize that or not. So is the Trinity important? Jesus says yes. So we need to wrestle to try to seek to understand what we can know about the Trinity because it's glorious, because it's beautiful, because it should bring delight into our lives. So we continue to try to bring ourselves into alignment with Jesus who felt like it was important, not just even for his disciples, but to spell out the beauty of the Trinity even to his enemies. And just like that, Jesus provides us with a thick Trinitarian description of what it means for him to be the light. Echoing what we saw in John 1, he is the light who eternally with the Father through which all things was made, who is now pierced into the darkness to shine forth the brilliance of the Father on all people and to lead them into eternal life. He is the light. Like the pillar of fire during the Exodus wanderings that led his people through the dark wilderness into the promised land of God's presence. Jesus is the light. 
That's what it means for him to be the light. But our passage doesn't end there this morning. Our passage doesn't just end with a description that Jesus is the light. Our passage here gives us an example of those who have rather hated the light, right? They heard this testimony from Jesus and they hated it. They hated what they heard because they're from the world, because they're from the darkness. But here's our problem. We're also from the world and from the darkness. We also are in the same predicament that they were. We were born here. We're shrouded in darkness, which raises the question, what hope then do we have? Jesus' statement in verse 12 does not end with the declaration of his identity, but includes an invitation to enjoy the light. Verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To have the light of life, to enjoy the light, we must follow the light, which is, again, appropriate if the imagery here is this kind of exodus pillar of fire. But what does it mean to follow Jesus as the light? Well, it means to be his disciples. To follow someone in the ancient world was to be their disciple. This is filled out later in verse 31. Um, Jesus echoes this teaching with a different metaphor in verse 31. If you abide in my word. Um, It's very common in the gospel of John where he'll use parallel statements throughout to aid in interpretation so that the second fills out the first or the latter fills out the former. Um, So to, uh, to help understand, he writes that this is to abide in my word. To abide in his word is to follow the light. This is discipleship following Christ, abiding in scriptures, right? This includes, this includes treasuring it. This includes meditating upon his word. This includes learning it. This includes living it out. This is what it means to abide in God's word. It is in God's word that God reveals himself to us and invites us into relationship with him. It is in his word that we are invited to hear him. His word shapes us and it gives us the vocabulary that we need so we can rightly respond to him. This is where he transforms us in the power of his spirit, which is what verse 23 anticipates, knowing all truth. What happens when we follow Christ, when we, when we abide in his word? The result is following the light. That's what we see in verse 12, following the light. We can can have the light. Not that we become possessors of the light. Not that all of a sudden we become the source of the light. But that we get to enjoy the light. Or verse 31 describes it as being Jesus' disciples. That's fundamentally what what being Jesus' disciple is at its core. It's being in the presence of our king, delighting to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Verse 23 describes it as being set free. Now, it's funny because the the Jews respond in verses 33 to 36. They respond that they've never been captive to another people, right? They're responding to this this notion of being set free. They say that they've never been captive to another people. Now, this is ironic because if you know the history of the Israelites, you know that they were captive to almost everyone. I don't know. There was a nation that they weren't captive to, right? Uh, That's a slight exaggeration, but they they, they were regularly prisoners of other people. 
Um, it's probable because I, I don't, I don't imagine these Pharisees are ignorant about their history. Um, it's probable that what they mean when they say this is not that they were never political, um, captives or per- political servants of other people. Certainly they were, but rather that they enjoyed a certain spiritual freedom. The Pharisees felt confident that they had enjoyed a spiritual freedom because they were the children of Abraham, the people of God, endowed with all the promises that were given to Abraham and given to God's people. So they enjoyed a certain spiritual freedom. But regardless of their political situation, regardless of it, they were spiritually free. And they're not totally wrong in this. But Jesus corrects this. He corrects them. He says that true spiritual freedom isn't ultimately about who you're related to, though. Being related to Abraham wasn't enough. It's not ultimately about who you're related to. It's about who you serve and who you follow. And there's only one way that leads to true spiritual freedom, and that's in Christ. The only course to freedom is through the light. Jesus is the true light of the world. He bids us all to come and to warm ourselves in the heat of his radiance. Like that perfect sunbeam that pierces through the window of your house on a spring day, right? It has the power to just melt you and to bring a comfort in a way that few things can. And that's only a taste of what Jesus ultimately invites us to, into fellowship with him when we're invited to commune with him. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, Are you following Christ in this way? Is he truly a light to your soul? Or is this all purely academic and thought-provoking? Does your soul melt in his presence? Or are you hardened and calloused to his invitations? If you groan hard, if you don't respond, I encourage you to return to his word to abide in it, not just to know it, not just to read it, but to hear his voice speak to you, to know his glory and his radiance, and to have your heart seared by the luminous presence of our Lord and Savior. That's what he promises to do to us with his word. He doesn't want want a bunch of Pharisees who know about him. He wants white-hot worshipers who delight in him. So let me ask you, are you enjoying the light? Jesus came into the world like a radiant light, and he invites you to enjoy him. Won't you enjoy him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your light that came to make you evident, to show forth how glorious and how mighty and how amazing and how beautiful you are. Father, I pray that we would all lean into the light, Father, that we would seek to enjoy it, that we would not um, leave this purely cognitively in our minds, but Father, that we would seek you with our whole heart, God, that we would be a people devoted to enjoying your light. Father, you are good. I pray that you would continue to draw our hearts to yourself, that you would continue to bring yourself glory. God, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Please rise for the uh... this morning. It's coming out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Please just stay at your seats for a few moments, and uh, then you'll be released by Rose. Otherwise, go forth in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a good Sunday. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.